This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We're going to be reading today through Paul's epistle to the church at Colossa as we've been doing so for the summer. And we now find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 18, and we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. And if you'd like to use the Bibles located in the seatbacks in front of you, this passage is on page 984, 984. So let's pray one more time before we hear the word of the Lord. Father, we beg of you to do what only you can do. And that's to change us from the inside out. And so we need you, Lord, to do hard work and heart work in all of us today. Show us great and mighty things which we do not know. Amen. Well, for context and for continuity from last week, I think what I'd like us to do is pick up on verse 17 instead of starting on 18. We've already read it in unison, but let's start there. Verse 17 of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Please have a seat. Well, I said at the first hour, and I want to say at the second by giving thanks on behalf of all of us here who I know have greatly benefited already from this study through Colossians. I want to say thanks to Pedro and to you, Matt, to Michael, to Luke. You men are true gifts to us. And on a personal note, I want you to know how grateful I am to have the privilege to stand here and serve you in this way this morning and this afternoon. This is serious business. And it's also 
a gift. So I thank you. Now, let's start with verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. When I was a, a young teenager, someone told me one day that I was a sinner. I didn't like that word sinner, and I certainly didn't like having it associated with me. And that's because I'd always thought of myself as a pretty good boy. I loved and I obeyed my parents. I worked hard to get good grades and I tried to excel at everything that I did. And I did all of that in part because I wanted my parents to be proud of me. I wanted them to love me, especially my father. And while they really never gave me any reason to doubt it whatsoever, I think I was always trying to, to earn their approval. I wanted to be right in their eyes. And I learned that day that sinners are not good, not with God, because they've disobeyed his perfect and holy standard and my sins meant death, being disapproved and separated from God forever and ever and ever. And when I heard that news, it broke my heart because I wanted for the first time not only my father's, but the heavenly father's approval as well. And so on that day, by God's grace, through faith, I put all my trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as full recompense for my sins, and I was saved. And in an instant, God took my blind heart, and he opened it, and for the first time, I knew him, and that changed everything for me. Everything. I became a new man. I had new motives. I had new aims for living. I had new reasons for doing everything. That day, he freed me from the need to earn approval because in Jesus, I am approved. And you know what? So are you. So are you who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And you too are a new creation. And so you too have new motives now, new aims for living, new reasons for doing everything. Now all of us can do, as we read in Colossians 3.17, everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And now in Jesus, as new creations which yield new motives, he affects every aspect of life. Even and especially intimate relationships like that between a husband and a wife. 
a parent and a child, an employer and an employee, or for that matter, any relationship with anyone. And in this passage that we just read, our Father in heaven, through Paul, is giving us, with our new lives now, the ultimate motive, the ultimate reason why and with what we can follow his clear, concise, and concrete commands and instructions around relationships, especially relationships in the household. And it's these intimate relationships, right? It's these household relationships that can sometimes, and ironically, be the most challenging relationships of all. And that's because they're tested again and again and again. In the home, the true you is on full display daily. It's been said, you cannot hide your true self forever. And we might add, especially in the home. And it's amid these, these intimate relationships that our Heavenly Father, the best Father that we will ever know, He lovingly guides us and instructs us to submit, love, do not be harsh, obey, do not provoke, work heartily, treat justly and fairly. So we're going to probe into these relationships that are spelled out here in this text. And we're going to look at the command for each person in the relationship. And then we're going to finish our time by answering the question, why? In other words, what's the motivation to obey? And where does that motivation come from? And we're going to save that answer for the end. So let's dive in. Start with the most intimate of relationships of all, and that's between wives and husbands, where the two have become, as Genesis 2.24 states, one flesh. That's intimate. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, Wives. Why start with wives and not husbands? Well, most theologians believe that Paul, by addressing wives first, is number one, following God's ordained and subjected order for the relationship. He does the same thing for children and parents and bondservants and masters. And then secondly, he's resetting the cultural mindset about the worth of women because women were vulnerable. They were powerless in the marriage relationship and they were possessions to their husbands in that culture. And Paul's turning that cultural paradigm upside down and he's reinforcing that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all 
one in Christ. If you hearken back to last week, verse 11 of chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul's essentially saying the same thing. Everyone has a seat at Christ's table. Everyone, no matter who you are. And that, my family, is divine. Now, to the Christian wife, Paul writes this, submit to your husbands. Submit. Submit. It's just, it's just one word, two syllables, but to submit is to place yourself under, to put yourself voluntarily and willingly in a position of subjection to your husbands. God, who is the ruler of the universe, who put all things under his feet, including husbands, is saying to wives, submit. This means that wives are to arrange themselves in an orderly fashion under their husbands. Not because they're inferior. Wives and husbands, husbands and wives are equal in Christ, right? There's no position of inequality, just like there's no position of inequality in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in value. But even within the Trinity, there's a subjected order. The Son is subject to the Father, and the Spirit always points to the Son. And now we get to see in beautiful, living color, a picturesque order of divine creation playing itself out right here in the marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, more and more people today are arguing that this command to submit was purely cultural and therefore it doesn't apply to us. But Paul's writing here that submission has nothing to do with cultural norms and everything to do with God's created order and putting on full display the glory of God in the marriage relationship. And that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> okay, so what might it look like, wives, to submit? Well, perhaps, and I want to give some examples. They're not meant to be prescriptive, okay? But here are some examples. Like, first of all, listening to and respecting your husband. Like having, as it states in 1 Peter 3, a gentle and quiet spirit, and hear this, which in God's sight is very precious. Maybe it's like desiring your husband's good over your own personal needs. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Maybe it's like letting go of control of the ultimate direction of the home. 
Should he listen to you? Yes, he should. But remember, he's accountable to God. You're to submit to him. So can you let go of the ship's rudder and let God grab hold? Or maybe it's like releasing all bitterness toward him, Ephesians 4.31, not keeping score, accepting his problems as your problems, and husbands, you should be doing likewise. Now, many would ask at this point, just how far should my submission go? Well, Paul tells us, actually, in Ephesians 5.24, when he writes, Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Everything. Everything? Well, everything except as we see in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when you're being asked to violate God's word or his ordained will. Do you remember in that passage? We won't go there, but just let me tell you, when Peter and the apostles were instructed by the council and the high priest to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, what did they say? How did they respond? They said, we must, we must obey God rather than man. And wives, you too must obey God above all else. Now, husbands, a word to us. Her submission is always in the context of a loving relationship. We're going to see that in just a moment. And it's never in the context of a relationship that's domineering by you or oppressive or abusive. So wives, Paul writes, submit to your husbands. Now, to the husbands, verse 19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love, love. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Wives, in this, con in this text, have but one command. Our lucky day, we get two. All right? So let's start with the first, love. This love is agape love. It's the kind of love that takes pleasure in the other. It longs for the other. It esteems the other. And the verb tense of this love means that it continues on and on and on. It never stops, it never slows down, it never sleeps, love never ends, 1 Corinthians 13. This kind of love is also very deliberate. It's going to be expensive, it's going to be precious, it's sacrificial, and it's going to cost us husbands everything. Because our personal interests must be laid down for the care of our bride, the love of our lives, second to Christ. It's important to note, men, as well, that this command to love our wives is not the counterpart to her submit. In other words, it's not if she submits, then we love. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 5.23 that we are the head of the wife, even as Christ is of the church, and headship demands love. And we know that because Christ is the head of the church. And he shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, Romans 5.8. And as Christ is the head of the church, we are the head of the wife. Men, this is an appointed position for us. God delegated authority to us in this relationship, and it's a statement of fact. It's patent. It's inescapable. It is who we are as husbands. And this, brothers, should sober us. It certainly has me this week as I've studied this passage because as the head of my wife, Victoria, I'm given to meet her needs. For her to know that she's always loved and that she's never abused, never mistreated, and never taken advantage of. I'm the one that's ultimately responsible for what happens in the home. And I'm going to have to answer to Christ for that. I understand, and you should too, men. You can't control it all. But I and you are responsible to lead, to love, to serve, to sacrifice, to shepherd my family, and above all else, our wives. Husbands, our, our second command is do not be harsh. The New American Standard would put it this way, do not be embittered against them. And I think in some ways that's a better way to think of it because when something tastes bitter, our instinct is to want to spit it out of our mouths. But this is more than just a taste, men. It's more than an emotion or an attitude. It's a reaction that comes from the emotion, from the attitude, and it manifests itself in outbursts of anger and sometimes in harsh treatment to our wives. I think it would be helpful for us to always remember at this point that our wives are also fellow heirs with us. There are sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 7 states, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are, listen, heirs. Heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may, may not be hindered. So fellow husbands, I want to leave you with these words from Ephesians 5.25, they're familiar to many of you, so don't gloss over it. Let them sink in. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, in love, he chose us. 
In love, he sacrificed for us. In love, he gave everything for us. And that is our model, husbands. Jesus is our model, and we look to him. All right, the next set of relationships, verse 20, Paul writes to children. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, so there's no set age to define a child in this verse. But, hear me out, if you're here, living at home, under your parents' guidance, this verse probably applies to you. So listen carefully now, young people. Listen carefully. You have but one command, one duty here, as Paul spells out in Colossians, obey your parents. And to obey means to listen and to attend to. To listen and to attend to. In other words, young people, be alert when your parents ask you or tell you to do something or to not do something. Pay attention and then carry it out. Obey. This is very clear cut, kids. It's not complicated. Now, to help us with this, I want you to remember, young people, that you are subject to your mother and your father. I know some of you wish it weren't that way. They're over you and you're under them. And this structure is nothing new. It's been a God-ordained order since the beginning of time all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel as children under Adam and Eve as the parents. So this is unavoidable, kids. You are a child of your parents. And one day, you will no longer be under their authority, but that's not today. And when that day does come, you're still to honor them to the very end because that's what Paul writes in Ephesians 6 too. Now, I wanted to drive this point home by looking at the childhood of Jesus. But did you know that we only have one single glimpse recorded in the Bible of Jesus in the home? Only one. He was 12 years old, if you recall. He was in the temple in Jerusalem, and somehow his parents had misplaced him while traveling in this large caravan while returning from the Passover holiday. And when he reunited with his parents, Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 51, that he, Jesus, went down with them, his parents, Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth, his home, and listen to this, was submissive to them. Jesus was submissive to his mom and dad. He was under them, the son of God, the king of kings, the creator of all things. 
Jesus, our Lord, was submissive to his mom and dad. I think that's amazing. We don't know the specifics of what that household looked like, but we can imagine. We can imagine. And in your home, young people, it might look something like this. And again, I'm going to give some examples that are not meant to be prescriptive. But it's doing what your parents ask you to do and doing it right away. I once heard a mom here in this church say to her kids, to obey is to obey now. And I think that's right. <laughs> it's also not doing what they tell you not to do. If they say, don't walk on the grass, don't walk on the grass. It's trusting their direction about how you spend your time and to stop challenging them about it all the time. It's not cutting your parents down with your friends, even under your, your breath. It's not being sarcastic, but rather speaking to them respectfully. It's not talking about your parents' faults with others because love covers a multitude of sins. It's caring more about what God thinks of you than what your peers might think of you. And this is a huge temptation for you teenagers. Believe me, I know. Where you are, I once was. And where I am, you may one day be. I get it. Most of us in this room get it. We've been there. It's also being grateful and showing gratitude, saying thank you. It's not whining. It's not trying to get by with as few chores as possible. And sometimes, young people, it's just doing things for mom and dad without them asking because you can look around and you can just see that stuff needs to get done, like vacuuming like sweeping, like doing the dishes, watering, whatever it is. And I'll leave you with this. It's as much about the way you obey as it is about the attitude in which you obey. You can't just obey on the outside. You need to ask God to help you to obey on the inside as well. And if you're having difficulty with that, he will help you if you ask. <laughs> now, Paul also writes to children, obey your parents in everything, full stop, unless, unless they ask you to do something right, like the father and the mother that violates the commands of God. So children, young people, obey God, obey your parents. Now, to the fathers or the parents. Verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He addresses fathers here, but we could also say parents, but fathers are specifically called out because they had absolute control over the lives of their children. And it's appropriate, yes, to include mothers here, but fathers I think should pay special attention because we're the head of the family. We have the responsibility and there's no blame shifting for us dads. Sorry to say. 
Now, this is the first time in Paul's collection of commands in this passage that he states this command in the negative. Paul writes, do not, do not. In, other, in fact, it's better stated really to say stop. Stop doing this as if it's already happening. So stop or do not provoke your children. Meaning, to stir them up, to arouse them to anger, to irritate them, to incite them. And some Bible versions, like the New International, use the word exasperate, and that too would be correct. Stop provoking, stop exasperating your, your children. Now, in the spirit of putting off and putting on from last week's sermon from Michael, Paul here instructs fathers to put off provoking, right? Put it off. But in Ephesians 6, 4, he instructs fathers with a positive command to instead put on discipline and instruction. He writes this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's to put off. But here's the put on, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's to put on. And that means training them and educating them and correcting them and admonishing them toward what? Paul says to the Lord. Fathers, parents, give your children Christ. Point them to the gospel at every opportunity. Show them their sin, yes. And then give them forgiveness and most of all, the forgiveness found in Christ. So to provoke or to exasperate a child might look something like this. Again, not prescriptive, but it might be like ruling with an iron fist, being overly strict or severe or controlling, or maybe even too heavy-handed with the rod. I personally have witnessed this and I've seen young people become extremely angered and embittered by it. But here's some good news, that even in that, Christ can course correct it. He can redeem it. Maybe it's being overly protective, too insulting, or too insulating, I should say, from the world. There's no question, we sang a song recently, just now, that sin has made this a foreboding world. And we should caution our kids about it, but we should also teach them, as the phrase goes, to live in the world, but not be of the world. Remember what we just read in Ephesians from Paul? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means correct them, show them what's wrong, and then instruct them in the ways of God. We can't just say to our child, don't, don't, don't. We have to show them what's been done, done, done in Christ. Maybe it's constantly correcting your children, always looking you know, for what they did wrong or comparing them to a sibling or to a friend like they never really measure up. After a while, they become like little whooped puppies. Instead, in the spirit of putting on, as we heard last week from Colossians 3.12, 
put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Maybe it's mom and dad not being on the same page. Sending mixed messages. Mom says one thing, dad says another. And it creates household inconsistency and confusion for the child. Parents, we need to get aligned with one another on things like household rules, on chores, on consequences, and so on. And this will help you, this will help you in the home to give order and peace in it. Now here's what might happen if we persist in provoking our children. Paul writes, lest they become discouraged. In other words, so they won't lose heart. They won't lose their spirit. They won't become joyless or crestfallen. I don't believe any of us in this room would want that for our children, and neither does the Lord. Now, finally, the last set of relationships mentioned in this passage is between bond servants and masters. I'm only going to read the commands out of these verses because we've already read the entirety of the text. Verse 22, bond servants obey in everything. Verse 23, work heartily. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly. Those are the commands. Now many ask, why would Paul give imperatives around, of all things, slavery. Those words stir up all kinds of visceral emotions for us, especially in 2022. It's an injustice, we would say. It's abhorrent, yes. It is, and it was back then. And praise be to God that slavery has been abolished in our society. But listen, it was a very much of a part of the everyday fabric of Paul's society because bond servants were fused into the nuclear family. They lived with them day in and day out, right in the heart of deep domestic relational intimacy. And so Paul gave instructions even to Christian bond servants and masters because they had to exist within that system, believing, believing that the gospel could be effectual even there, even within a system of slavery. Now, as more than just an aside, I feel it's important to mention that nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see slavery sanctioned. Not there. So if that's the case, how might these verses apply to them and then to us? Many, many theologians believe that there is a parallel application here to that between the employer and the employee relationship, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, so we've got to be 
a little careful about this. Even so, there are principles here of hierarchy, of submission, of authority, and they can be helpful to us in many settings, including the workplace. So let's consider, in light of that, the twofold command to bond servants, which is to obey and to work heartily. First, obey. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in verse 20 for children, so we're not going to unpack that again, okay? However, just like children to parents, Paul does write to bond servants, and he says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. There's that word again. Everything. Everything? Everything except, again, when we're asked to go against God's will. So, what might that mean for us, for us that work in the workplace? Does it mean even when we don't like the assignment the employer is asking of us? Or even when the work seems unfairly distributed? Or even when the boss is obnoxious? Or even when we're bored with our jobs? Yes. <laughs> Family, by God's grace, let's do that work anyway, because everything is all-inclusive. And the bondservants then, and we are now to also then work heartily. Work heartily, meaning that our work should be motivated from deep within, from the very soul itself. Just one verse earlier, Paul almost states the exact same thing with the words with sincerity of heart. And if our work is being driven from the inside out by God's grace, then we're not going to be concerned with, as Paul writes, eye service and with people-pleasing. So family, let's, let's not complain. Let's not try to get away with as little work as possible. Let's not be combative. Rather, let's work with contentedness and with diligence, remembering this, that our workplace is a vast mission field, white for harvest. And our work out there is a wonderful, wonderful full-time ministry opportunity. And I don't want anybody to cause you to think otherwise. He's placed you there for a kingdom purpose. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Paul summed it up so well in verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then quickly to the Christian masters. Paul writes, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. In other words, do what is right. Be equitable to those you have authority over. Don't abuse them. Don't take advantage of them because 
of a position of power that you might possess. We're serving, family, image bearers of the Most High God. Image bearers just like you and me. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Okay, so we are close to approaching the end of our time together, and we have heard, by way of review, submit, love, do not be harsh, obey, do not provoke, work heartily, treat fairly, and justly. And I know for some of us, when we read these verses, a common temptation might be to say to ourselves, I really don't want to hear this. It's too hard. I fail all the time. I can't do it. It's impossible. It seems idealistic. Or we might say, that was then, 2,000 years ago, and these things don't apply to me in this post-modern post world. Or, we might say, okay, I'll do it. I'll submit. I'll love. I'll obey. I don't like it, but I'll do it. Almost in a in a passive, aggressive way. And family, I am convinced, based upon what God is saying to us in this text that we've been reviewing today, that one of the main reasons why some Christians, not all, some Christians struggle in relationships and sometimes in intimate household relationships is because we don't know. We don't remember why. Why do what we're instructed and commanded to do in relationships? What's the motive and what's behind that motivation? And therefore, passages like this can sometimes read like, just eat your peas, would you? Eat your peas. But our, our ever-loving Father, He's not trying to shove peas down our throats. No, he's, he's always good. He's always gracious. And He gently entreats us and makes it abundantly clear why we're to do what we do in relationships, and in everything for that matter. And when we know and when we believe the why behind the what, the what exalts the why. Let me say that again. When we know and believe the why we do behind the what we do, the what we do upraises, it uplifts, it elevates, it exalts the why. 
I'm going to say it one more time, only even differently again. We Christians, we followers and lovers of Jesus by faith, are given and possessed by the power of the Spirit. Think about that. The power of the Spirit that now resides in us through God's grace found in Jesus Christ as new creations, we possess a motivation, a deep purpose, an ultimate purpose and meaning that drive us to what? To exalt Him, to worship Him, to find joy in everything, including relationships, even the hardest and most difficult relationships of all. And that's what the first two chapters of Colossians were all about. That's the why. Jesus is the why. He's the, as our summer series is entitled, he's the hope of glory, Christ in us. Colossians 1.27. You see, the why behind our what the reason why we obey and the grace and the power to obey is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let's unpack those two things quickly. First, who is Jesus? He's Lord. He's Master. It's buried throughout the text. Look at it. Verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, submit in the Lord. Verse 20, obey for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, obey fearing the Lord. Verse 23, work heartily for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter four, verse one. Treat justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master or Lord. It's the same Greek word. Eight times in eight verses, Paul elevates everything in the Lord. Lord, master, the one who has absolute ownership rights and authority, the creator of all things, the head of the church, the preeminent one, he's the one to whom we owe everything and the one to whom we serve and the one to whom we answer. It's not ultimately the husband. It's not ultimately the father or the parents. It's not ultimately the employer or the boss. The Lord. He is Lord of all. Acts 10.36, that's who he is. Okay, so what has Jesus done? Well, here's what, Philippians 2.8. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient. You hear that? Obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that for us. Why? Why? 
because he loves us. And by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16. Family, we lived in darkness, now we live in light. We were once lost, now we're found. We had hearts of stone, now we have hearts of flesh. We were once blind, now we see. We were once an enemy of God, now we're his friend. We were once dead, and now we're alive. <laughs> I know, family. Believe me, I know. We all know. Following these instructions are not easy. We fail. Sometimes it even creates hardship. Most often in Christian relationships, healthy Christian relationships, it creates peace. It creates harmony. It creates joy. And while there are no guarantees, right, that obedience will always result in life happily ever after on this earth, it always pleases God. Just as Christ always pleased or obeyed to a please, just as Christ always obeyed to a please the Father with Him, with Jesus as our yardstick, and Him in us, we can bring glory to God through the response of obedience because He, as we read, was obedient on our behalf. None of this, none of it earns a right standing with God. We have a right standing with God already because of Jesus. We are forgiven. <laughs> and he can change us. And he is changing us. And his liberating grace will give you strength. It's all been done. Now we can do. Come to him. Trust him. Love him. Obey him. Let's pray.